As AI continues to make devices, machines, vehicles, and things more intelligent, Qualcomm is pushing AI processing to the edge, specifically onto the device. With more than a decade of advanced AI research, they're making it possible for AI and machine learning to move from the data center and the cloud to the device for enhanced privacy and security, increased reliability, more immediate response, and faster speeds. From AI to 5G, it all starts with Qualcomm. This is Voices in AI brought to you by GigaOM. I'm Byron Reese. Today, my guest is Max Welling. He is the Vice President Technologies at Qualcomm. He holds a PhD in theoretical physics from Utrecht University, and he's done postdoc work at uh, Caltech, University of Toronto, um, and, and other places as well. Welcome to the show, Max. Thank you very much. I always Happy like to, to start here. with a question with first principles, which is, what is intelligence? And why is artificial intelligence artificial? Is it not really intelligent? Or is it, so I'll, I'll start with that. What is intelligence and why is AI artificial? Okay, so um, yeah, it's intelligence is not something that's easily defined in a single sentence. I think there is a whole broad spectrum of possible intelligence. And in fact, in, art in artificial systems, we are starting to see very different kinds of um, intelligence. For instance, you can think of a search engine as being intelligent in some way, um, and uh, but it's a very different kind of intelligence, obviously, as a, as a human being, right? So there's human intelligence, and you know, I guess that's the ability to, to plan uh, ahead and to, to analyze the world, to organize information, uh, these kinds of things. Um, um, but, you know, artificial intelligence is, is artificial because it's sort of uh, in, mach in machines, not in human brains. That's the only reason why we call it artificial. Um, I don't think there's any reason why artificial intelligence couldn't be the same or very similar to human intelligence. Um, I just think that uh, that's a very restricted set of intelligence, and uh, we could imagine having a whole broad spectrum of intelligence in machines. I'm with you with all of that, but maybe, because you're, you're like human intelligence is organizing information, it's planning ahead, and machines are doing something different like search engines and all of that. Maybe I should ask the question, what isn't intelligence? I mean, at some point, isn't it, doesn't it lose all its meaning if it's like, well, it's kind of a, you know, a lot of stuff. I mean, like, what are we really talking about when we, when we come to intelligence? Are we talking about problem solving or are we talking about adaptation or, or what? Or, or is yeah, the word so are... meaningless that it has well, no definition? Well, it, yeah, it depends on how broad you want to define it. So I think it's not a very you know, well-defined term per se. I mean, you could ask yourself whether a fish is intelligent. Um, and I think a fish, to some degree, is intelligent because you know it has it has a brain, it processes information, it adapts uh, perhaps a little bit to the environment. Um, so even a fish is intelligent, but clearly it's a lot less intelligent than a human. Um, so anything I would say that has the purpose of sensing, sort of acquiring information from its environment, um, trans you know computing on that information. Uh, to its own benefit. In other words, to survive better is the ultimate goal, or, or to reproduce maybe is, 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 the, is the penultimate goal. 
Um, and um, so, so basically then, so once you've taken any information and you compute, then you can act, you know, use that information, you can then act on the world in order to, you know, bring the world in a state uh, that's more beneficial for you, right? So that you can survive better, reproduce better. So anything that processes information, I would say, in order to, you know, imp- you know, imp- you know, reach a goal in order to achieve a particular goal, which in evolution is is reproducing or surviving. Um, but in you know, in artificial systems, could be something very different, right? In artificial system, you could still sense information, you could still, you know, compute and process information in order to, you know satisfy your customers, right? Which is like providing them with better search results or something like that. So that's a different goal, but the same phenomenon is underlying it, which is, you know, processing information to reach that goal. Now, and uh, you mentioned adaptation um, and learning. So I think those are things that are super, you know, important uh, parts of being intelligence, right? So, um, you know, a system that can adapt and learn from its environment um, and from experiences is a system that can Im- keep improving itself um, and therefore become more intelligent or, or better at its task or adapt when the environment is changing. So these are really important parts of being intelligent, but not necessary because you could imagine a self-driving car as being completely pre-programmed. It doesn't adapt, but it still behaves intelligent in the sense that it, it, it knows you know when things are happening. It knows when to overtake other cars. It knows how to avoid collisions, etc. So, so in, in short, I think intelligence is actually a very broad spectrum of things. It's not super well defined. And of course, you can define, you know, more narrow things like a human intelligence, for instance, or fish intelligence and, or, or, or search engine intelligence or something like that. And then it would mean something slightly different. So I'm not going to belabor this for too much longer, but how far down in simplicity would you extend that? So if you have a cat food dish that has a weight sensor it and it refills itself so it's so what was that again uh you have a you have a pet cat and you have a food bowl that yeah. refills itself when it gets empty so it's got a weight sensor and when the weight sensor shows no nothing in there it opens something up and, and fills it it has a goal which is keep keep the cat happy uh yeah. is that a primitive kind of artificial intelligence it would be a very, very primitive kind of intelligence. Fair enough. Yes. And then going yeah, back... processes... Yeah, sorry. Going back centuries before that, I read the first vending machines, the first coin-operated machines were to dispense holy water, and you would drop a coin in a slot, and the weight of the coin would weigh down a, a thing that would open a valve and dispense some water, and then it would, it would you know, um, as the water was dispensed, the coin would fall out, and it would close off again. Is that a really, really primitive artificial intelligence? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, you can drive these things to uh, to an extreme with you know many of these definitions. Uh-huh. You can, of course, drive them to an extreme. It, you know, clearly this is some some kind of mechanism. I guess you know when there is sensing, and this can sense, there is a bit of sensing because it's 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 sensing the right. weight of a coin, um, and then it has a response to that, right? Which is uh, you know opening something. You know, uh, that's a super simple, re- you know, it's like a, uh, a response, a sort of completely automatic response. And humans actually have many of these uh, reflexes, right? If you hit your knee with a hammer, with a uh-huh. little hammer like the doctor does, your knee jerks up. Um, so that's actually being done through a nervous system, 
um, that goes to you know doesn't even reach your brain. It's, I think it's done in your somewhere in your you in the in the back of your your spine. Um, so it's very 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 primitive. Um, but still, you could you could argue it senses something and it acts. It, it does something. It, it computes something and it acts. So it's like this very very most fundamental simple you know uh, form of intelligence. Yeah. So the technique we're using to make a lot of advances in artificial intelligence now with our computers is machine learning. I guess it's really a simple idea, right? Let's study data about the past. Let's look for patterns and make projections into the future. How powerful is that technique? Like how, what do you think are the inherent limits of that particular way of gaining knowledge and, and building intelligence? Well, I think that's um, actually, it's kind of interesting if you look at the history of AI. So, um, you know, in the old days, you know, there was a lot of AI, which was hard coding rules. So you would think about, you know, what are the, all the eventualities which you could encounter. And for each one of those, you would sort of, you know, uh, sort of a program a response, sort of an automatic response to those. And those systems did not necessarily look at data in large amounts from which they would learn patterns and, and learn to sort of respond. Um, so in other words, it was all up to humans to figure out, you know, what are the relevant things to look at, to sense, and how to respond to them. And if you make enough of those, actually a system like that looks like it's behaving quite intelligent. Um, and actually still, I think nowadays, you know, self-driving cars a large component of these cars is made of lots and lots of these rules which are hard-coded in the system, right? And so if you have many, many of these really primitive pieces of intelligence together, they might look like they act quite intelligently. Now, um, there is a new paradigm, which is, you know, it, it's always been there, but it's been basically um, becoming the, the main, the dominant mainstream in AI, the, the, the new paradigm, I would say which is, well, why are we actually, you know, trying to hand code all of these things which we should sense um, in there by hand? Because it basically, you can only do this to the level of, you know, what the human imagination actually is able to come up with, right? So if you think about detecting um, some, let's say, um, uh, sort of if somebody is suffering from Alzheimer's from a brain MRI, um, well, you can look at like the size of your hippocampus, and 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 it's known that that thing shrinks, it, it that organ shrinks if you know if you're starting to suffer from from memory issues, which are correlated with uh, Alzheimer. So that a human can think about that um, and and put this in as a rule. Um, but it turns out that um, there's many many more far more subtle patterns in that MRI scan, and um, if you sum all of those up, um, then actually you can get a much better prediction. But humans, they wouldn't be able to even see those subtle patterns because it's like if this brain region and this brain region, you know, and this brain region, but not that brain region would sort of, you know, have this particular pattern, then, you know, this is a little bit of evidence in favor of like Alzheimer and then hundreds and hundreds of those things. So, so that humans just lack the imagination or the sort of the capacity to come up with all of these rules. And we basically discovered that, you know, just provide a large data set and let the machine itself figure out what these rules are instead of trying to hand code them in. Um, and this is the big change, for instance, with deep learning as well. So in computer vision and speech recognition, 
But that, that, that's first to computer vision. Uh, people had many hand-coded features that they would try to identify on the image, right? And then from there, they would you know, make predictions or whether, some, whether there was a person in the image or something like that. Um, but then basically said, well, let's just throw all the pixels, all the raw pixels at a neural net, which is a convolutional neural net, and let the neural net figure out what are the right features to, or let, the, let, the, let this neural net learn what the right features are to attend to when it needs to do a certain task. Um, and so that, you know, uh, works a lot better, again, because there's many very subtle patterns that it now learns to look at, which humans simply didn't think of. Um, to look at these same uh, to look at these things. Now, another example is AlphaGo. Maybe in AlphaGo, something similar happened, right? You know, um, humans have analyzed this game and come up with all sorts of rules of thumb of how to play the game. Um, but then, you know, AlphaGo figured out things that humans can't, you know, comprehend. It's too complex, but still, you know, um, it, it 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 made uh, that the algorithm win the game. So I would say it's uh, it's a new paradigm that goes well beyond trying to hand code human invented features into a system and therefore it would uh, it, it's a lot more powerful and in fact this is also the way of course humans work um, and I think there is no I mean I don't see a real limit to to this right so more if you pump more data through it um, in principle you can learn a lot of things or, or, or basically everything you need to learn um, in order to become uh, intelligent okay I, I want to um there are two whole different threads I want to take this. So one of them is what you just said, this is the way that humans work. Uh, let's, I'm going to come back to that statement, so keep that fresh in your head. But, you know, as you, the way you explain this, the way you talk about with the brain, uh, if this section of the brain and this, but not this, and this, but this, and this, and, and, and in, in your words, hundreds of things all come together to suggest this person may have dementia your point is well taken that a human could never have figured that out but isn't it by definition therefore also the case a human can't understand it and therefore those sorts of systems are inherently unexplainable and with AlphaGo yeah. specifically you know the when when it made when it made the move which was highly you know regarded as well, anyway, some of the moves, they, they don't know why AlphaGo made them. It's like we can't quite, there isn't explainability built into that system. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's an excellent question. Um, so um, w one response for me would, would also be like, we, we often don't even understand why humans make, mistake, uh, make uh, certain decisions, right? So um, if you uh, are out to buy a new home, um, you visit a whole lot of these homes and you look and you feel you know, how that home, um, you know, feels to you. And, 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 you know, maybe you have a certain list of things you want to check, um, but mostly you're taking this, this, this uh, decision very intuitively. And if you're then asked, oh, why did you take this decision? You will come up with some reasons, but it's, it's often that they're not the actual reason why you would, um, you know, make the decision because people have actually compared uh, researchers have compared people who make these decisions intuitively versus, you know, trying to, to approach it logically. And, and typically you make worse decisions if you really try to sort of make these decisions logically. So I think even humans don't understand really how and why they make, you know, these, these, these decisions at an intuitive level. So, okay, so that's, that's one part of the equation. So yes, when we build very, very complex algorithms that look at this sort of complicated set of um, 
patterns, then we will we may have to give up on trying to completely understand how a decision was reached. What we can do is try to come up with a proxy for it. So we could say, okay, now try to explain in human language the most important reasons why you made that decision, right? If we can ask the algorithm to do that. And I think that would be quite successful. That would be quite similar to asking a human being or a doctor when the doctor makes a diagnosis. Okay, can you tell me why you made that diagnosis, right? And then will come up with some, with some reasons, some explanations, but it might not be the whole picture. The other you know, option would be, and um, this is actually m might become quite necessary because of new uh, legislation in, uh, in Europe um, on privacy and explainability, that you say, okay, well, maybe I'm just trading in a little bit of performance or quite a bit of performance um, in favor of full explainability. So you then have a model that is quite simple, it doesn't look at all these complex patterns, but in fact, it is completely explainable. So there is this tension. I, I agree with you, but I think we should. We also need to learn to accept that you know we don't need to understand everything that we use in our lives, right? We step into an airplane. Um, I don't know how an airplane works, but I still sit in an airplane, um, and I trust it. Not because I I want to completely understand how the airplane works, but I've seen so many airplanes fly, and they don't fall out of the air. So that gives me some trust that, you know, maybe this thing just works and I can just trust it without completely understanding it. I, I'm in full agreement with everything you said. And, and I think it, personally, I think it would be a bit of a shame if, if, there's, if, if there were two teams trying to come up with an AI solution to something and one of them, you said, your, your explanation must be explainable. And the other one says, we don't care. It just needs to be right. Um, over time, you would expect that latter team would pull ahead and kind of constantly do better. Yeah. Um, so I want to come back to the comment. You said that this is the way humans work. Cause I think that's a really interesting and I would argue an open question because I don't know that humans are data processors like that. I don't know that human creativity, for instance, um, is something necessarily that, I don't know if you can study enough novels, feed enough novels into a neural network that eventually it produces Harry Potter. Um, right. I don't know if, if you can give it enough musicals and someday it makes Hamilton. Um, and, and that isn't to appeal to anything unscientific, merely to say that this really kind of narrow way of, let's take a lot of data and study it and come up with projections that that is the be all and end all to how humans do what we do. So how far would you take that, that that is how humans work? Okay. So um, the, the first thing I want to say about that is, um, you know, the way you build an intelligence um, is actually by creating understanding about the world. So you can think of that as the, in humans, this is the process of abstracting, right? So there's the pixels of an image or there's the sound, the audio of speech, but we don't hear audio, we hear words and we see objects and things in the world, right? So those are all abstractions and concepts that we have maybe partially, well, actually most of this we have learned from looking at the world. And you could argue there is, you know, our brains are structured in a certain way so that they can easily learn these things, right? This is well established for language, right? We have a brain or part of our brain, which is structured in a way so that we can easily pick up on a language. However, 
if we are born in one language versus another uh, sort of country versus another country, you know, we can pick up very different kinds of languages. So there is something we get born with, which is some 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 architecture in our brain and a learning algorithm, right? That's being created over evolution. But even evolution is a is a is a slow learning process, by the way. But let's say we're talking about sort of within a single individual, right? Do we have some prior sort of structure that helps us learn fast, right? But then in fact, when we start to learn, it's not just you know input, you know, some image and output, some kind of decision or prediction. So it goes through the process of understanding the world, um, and only you know when we pro when we sort of come up with these sort of this deep understanding of the world is when we can start to generalize away from you know the the things that we've 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 been encountering. So let me th- you know go back to the novel, right? So you read like uh, twenty novels in your life, or a hundred, or two hundred, whatever, right? And from there. You know, a talented individual will have to create now a completely new novel or be creative. Now, you can't do that by current techniques, by just, you know, throwing in, you know, all the words and just recombine them then, recombining them into sort of new uh, sentences or something like that. Now, you have to get to an ab- level of understanding and abstraction and appreciation, which you can think of as very, you know, that exists very deep in these neural networks after many, many layers um, or in or deep in your brain, um, where all these abstractions form, and from those abstractions you can create truly new things, right? And and deviate from from the from the things that you have seen, and we call that process generalization, which is in a very simple form similar to, you know, you've seen a hundred chairs, right? Um, but if you can, if there comes a completely new chair you've never seen before, what you still know is a chair, right? Because you know it falls into this abstract concept of a of a chair, right? Even though the details are something that you have never seen before. So I think this this idea of this abstraction and which is which is basically understanding how the world functions, the physics of the world, the psychology, the sociology of the world, which are very high level concepts. That's where really I would say you know from what, once you have gained that very deep understanding is when you can start to generalize and create new things. So you don't think there's any real impediment to a computer being, well, a general, a general intelligence down the road and to be no. creative and all of the rest? No, I don't think there's any of that uh, impediment because it, it, I should also start saying that I think we are not nearly close, right? So often people overestimate how close we are to that goal. So I think we are very far away, but I don't see any fundamental principles problem with you know creating such a intelligence in the long run because after all if you think about a human in some sense it's also just a you know information processing system we sense things we compute things we act on the world um, and it's just a very complex one um, and there's no reason why you couldn't replicate that in a machine um, so going back to creativity which might be interesting um, so how, so some sometimes people say, well, being creative is something very magical. That's not something that we could ever create in a computer. Um, But I don't agree because, in fact, we could be very, very surprised by computers at some point. Um, So creativity is really combining sort of uh, elements of things that you've learned in the past in very surprising new ways, right? So um, so a recombination of, of modules 
um, in, into new ways that are very surprising to others. Now, we are reasonably good at this as humans, but I would say that um, there there could be, you know, computers could, there's no reason why they couldn't do that and couldn't do it a lot better even than humans. And maybe the first sign of that was that move 36 or 37 in, in AlphaGo in, in one of these games where you could think of that and actually Go players think of that as a very creative move, right? And so it was a maybe a combination of things that hasn't been tried before. Um, and so, again, here you have to sort of define creativity, what it precisely means. It's also a bit of a fluid concept, but I, I see no reason why in computers that couldn't happen. Well, it is true that when, when that move was played, that was the moment people talked about AlphaGo being creative. Yeah. And, I mean, even Lisa Dole said it was a beautiful move. But exactly. I find it interesting that, you know, we have – we have brains that by all accounts, um, we don't understand. You know, we don't understand really how a thought is encoded, how it's retrieved, how our brains work. And then we have these minds, which I like to think of it as kind of everything that the brain does that seems kind of mysterious, like... A sense of humor. My liver doesn't have a sense of humor. My stomach doesn't have a sense of humor. Somehow, my brain does. And so we've got these minds we don't understand. And then we have consciousness, which is, you know, we experience the world. We don't measure it. All a computer can do is measure temperature. It doesn't know anything. It doesn't understand anything. It doesn't ex experience anything. And so we have brains, minds, and consciousness. And we don't really know how any of those work. But it seems, and I assume you would agree with this based on what you said, the, the sole reason we believe we can build it mechanically is we believe that in the end, humans are machines, that all of those processes I just described must be mechanistic. And if they're mechanistic, we'll be able to build them or a proxy for them. Would you agree with that? Uh, so with the latter statement, I agree. Um, because, but the thing I don't agree with is that a computer doesn't understand or a computer cannot have a mind, um, you know, and even whether, you know, a artificial intelligence couldn't become conscious at some point, right? So to me, consciousness um, is an emergent property of a highly complex system. And it may have just arrived in humans for very good reasons, um, you know, through evolution or maybe because we have a body or, you know, there could be, reasons why in the particular type of intelligence that, that humans have, um, a consciousness is actually a very beneficial thing to have. Uh, it could even be, you know, a, a side product, but I, I would, you know, believe that less. I would think it's a very sort of evolutionary uh, beneficial thing to have a consciousness. It would probably, you know, make you generalize better or make better decisions. And I don't see any reason why such processes couldn't emerge in a complex, in a sufficiently complex artificial intelligence. They don't have to, right? I think we can create all sorts of very, very complex intelligences without um, possibly a consciousness. Maybe there's other things there that we don't even fathom, you know, not, you know something completely different than consciousness. Um, but it, it, I, it doesn't exclude, I don't think, the fact that we could, in artificial 
intelligence create something like an, um, uh, a consciousness? It's just very hard to measure, right? It's just like asking what's happening inside a black hole. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a question you can never get an answer to. Um, in this case, right, you can ask an artificial intelligence, um, are you conscious, right? And then, you know, if, you, if, that, uh, if that's a artificial intelligence that decided that it wanted to at least show, uh, you know, consciousness, it would say yes, and it would give the right answer to all your questions. But whether it's truly conscious or not, we would never really discover. But, you know, that, I could ask the same question about you. I don't know whether you're conscious or not. Maybe you're acting like you're conscious and uh, maybe I'm the only conscious person in the world. I, you know, I don't know. So that's a matter of trusting in something. Well, sense, you're entirely right that thousands of years of philosophic thought have not answered that question. And I mean, you're, you know, that was what, in the end, Descartes said, you know, all I know is that there's me. I don't know anything yeah. else. <laughs> um, but, but, and I wrote, I don't, I don't know. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll put in a plug. I wrote a book on whether computers can become conscious. And mm -hmm. uh, at at issue are what, where by by what mechanism are humans conscious? And there isn't agreement on that. You know, people say mm -hmm. we don't know what consciousness is. We know what it is. Like we know what it is. We can define it. We just don't know how humans are. And and I figured or I I counted eight different theories on where consciousness comes from. And in them, I think four of them would allow a computer to be conscious, and two wouldn't. And two. Yeah. It's uh, unknown. But do you know the Chinese room problem from, from Searle? Yeah. Okay, let me just set this up for the reader real quickly, and I would love your thoughts on it. So this is a thought experiment, uh, and it, it boils back to Max's understanding, where uh, Max's point where he said he took issue with the, my remark that computers can't understand anything. And so Searle's setup was that there's this person, a librarian, who's in this giant room full of books. And, I, and, and the librarian doesn't speak any Chinese. That's uh, the important part of the, the setup. And outside of the room are, are native Chinese speakers, and they write questions in Chinese, and they slide them under the door. And the librarian, who doesn't speak any Chinese, picks them up and looks at the first character in these questions and goes and finds the book with that on the spine, pulls that book down, looks up the second character, it directs him or her to a third book, a fourth book, a fifth book, all the way until they get to the last character. And the book says, write this down. And so they copy these, these symbols that, again, they don't understand the symbols, copy them down very carefully, slide them back under the door, and the Chinese speaker outside the room picks it up and reads it, and it's a brilliant answer in Chinese. And so the question Searle poses is, does the librarian understand Chinese? Does the librarian understand Chinese? Now, yeah. uh, to, to bring it home and then to ask your, your the, the punchline of the story is obviously that's all a computer can do. It can just follow a program, which is all the librarian's doing. And to be clear, that room passes the Turing test, right? Like that Chinese speaker outside assumes there's a Chinese speaker inside the room. But to most people listening to this show, if you said, does that librarian understand Chinese? Most people would say no. Yeah. So my answer to that is, um, in order to play that game, um, you need an infinite amount of compute. You need like a ridiculous amount of compute to run that particular process. And while that may in the future using quantum computers, whatever may be possible, that's a solution 
that uh, doesn't require understanding. So this is the, the interesting part. So that's a solution that's perfectly valid from an, you know, from an input-output point of view. That's, a, that's an intelligence that actually that doesn't you know, um, uh, sort of develop sort of a deep understanding of the world because it doesn't need to, because it has an infinite amount of compute power to solve it the way you know, it was solved by the Chinese room. However, we don't have an infinite amount of compute in our brain. In fact, it's very, very restricted. Um, and evolution has put enormous pressure on our brains to keep them as computationally efficient as possible. And we need to eat in order to feed that brain, right? Um, which is, you know, our survival depends on that. Do we, w are we able to get enough food in our body in order to make this brain function? So under these, under these highly constrained environments, like um, having a very finite amount of compute, it, there is a shortcut to, the, to this problem. And the shortcut is not to do it the way it's done in this Chinese room, but the way is to, to, uh, to understand the world at its core. So to understand the processes, the abstractions, the concepts that make up our world. Because we, once we can simplify and categorize this world in its, in its elements, in its elementary particles, I would say, you know, from there we create understanding and we can actually give answers. These may be approximate answers or, you know, but from there we can do exactly the same thing that happened in the Chinese room, but with a lot less compute power involved. So, so, the, so this, this thesis would then be, you know, actually understanding the world and making these abstractions is the process by which you can do these jobs uh, with a lot less compute power. And so in some sense, you could argue understanding and consciousness could have come out of that constraint, out of the constraint that we need to solve these problems under very limited resources. And therefore, you know, therefore, it, 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 it goes down to my thesis that not every intelligence has to be conscious. It might just be a byproduct of something, right? And in this case, it's the byproduct of trying to solve these problems in the cheapest possible way. Well, then let me amend the, the question slightly. I, I want to open a new bank account at a bank, and I go to their website, and there's a chat bot, bank bot. And I say, Bankbot, what interest rate are you offering? And Bankbot says, right now we're offering 3.3%. And I'm like, well, what's the minimum deposit I have to put? And Bankbot says $10,000. And I put, and how long? And Bankbot answers every one of my questions. Does Bankbot understand my questions? And not necessarily, right? So uh -huh. it, it really depends on, so first of all, it's not well defined what understanding means. So that's the first part that, that you know, with many of these questions, you know, we first have to be very precise with what understanding means. And it's a very slippery concept, right? So, the, the, you know, to me, there is no such thing as, you know, understanding, because that's, an, you know, it's some experience that we have. It is, you know, much, a much more real measurable quantity is, you know, can I, which class of problems can I solve outside of the data? So how can I generalize? Um, with the minimum amount of data and the minimum amount of compute power. And I would say that understanding of some, you know, I would even define understanding in some form or other as, you know, how, with, you know, how, how efficient are you in sort of generalizing with minimal compute power and uh, depending on the minimal amount of data. So how that understanding comes to, you know, our consciousness, right? We can feel that we understand the world right? Because we see objects and we understand abstractions or we can explain our answer in some form or other. 
there could be another artificial intelligence which solves it in a, in a similar way. It also forms these abstractions, but it's never conscious of doing that, but it will exactly give the same, give the same answers. Right? And so whether one is understanding and the other one is not understanding or experiences that you know, it is understanding or not, all these things are very slippery in my mind in order to define them. But what we really care about is, okay, there is a particular task that this robot needs to solve. This could be very narrow or it could be very broad, which is survive in a, chain, a constantly changing environment, right? And if you can do this with minimal amount of compute power, um, I think you, you, you can argue that that requires some level of understanding of your environment. Otherwise, you couldn't actually generalize. Fair enough. And, and I'll only ask you one more question along these lines, and I, I, I would love to hear about, about what you do on a day-to-day -day basis. But my question is this. If, if you say, well, computers can or will be able to understand, and there's no reason they can't be conscious, there's no reason they can't experience the world, then what you're saying at some level is um, there's no reason they won't be able to feel pain. And exactly. historically, if something's been able to feel pain, we, we say, well, it has certain rights to begin with. Uh, yeah. It has the right not to be tortured. So how do we wrap our heads around that? How do we, is it moral to build a robot to do the chores around your house? If, if that robot may actually be experiencing like not wanting yeah. to wash your socks. So what? Yeah, it, it, yeah, these are really interesting questions. And I agree with you. So a robot, if you build a robot that can suffer, whether it's pain or other kinds of suffering, right, then that robot may have rights. Um, like we give rights to dogs. We don't want dogs to suffer. So, you know, we give them rights. You shouldn't actually, you know, you're not allowed to uh, to abuse dogs, right? So, and uh, if, if you know, think of it as an alien of, of, of some kind. So if we discover that they actually suffer, right, then we may not want to, you know, turn them off or do their chores. But just to make sure, we are nowhere near to such a situation, right? So it's like this would be very, very distant future scientific uh, sort of philosophy, uh, so science fiction philosophy that we're doing now, but that's fine. That's interesting. Um, but, you know, the, the, the solution to this could be, well, don't make robots that suffer, right? So if you need, you know, a robot to do the chores in your house, just design it in such a way that it doesn't experience suffering. And then, therefore, it's just happy, you know, design it in such a way that that makes it happy doing the chores in your house. So you are vice president of technologies at Qualcomm. Tell me, tell me what that looks like on a day-to-day -day basis. And then entice us with some of the cool stuff you are, that you get to work on that we would uh, be fascinated by. Yeah. So, um, so I'm, I'm two days a week or half, half of my time, basically I'm at Qualcomm uh, fulfilling this role um, and in sort of, um, you know, uh, helping with the AI strategy, determining the AI strategy for the company. Um, so this came out of an acquisition of a startup that we had in the Netherlands. And so uh, we have an office in the Netherlands now, um, which is, uh, you know, you know R&D office for AI and machine learning uh, for Qualcomm. Um, and it, what I find interesting is actually the link with what we just said, um, one of the things that Qualcomm is really concerned with is uh, power efficiency. Like, uh, you, know, you know, our brains are extremely power efficient um, and we evolved to become very power efficient. And I strongly believe that, you know, true understanding and uh, 
you know, you know, the forming of abstract concepts and stuff come come from these constraints. Um, and that's actually not, you know, that's actually where Qualcomm is is really, you know, the the leader in, which is, you know, turning AI into, you know, or, or thinking about AI solutions which are really really power efficient and which run on chipsets which are really really power efficient. So so that's very fascinating to me. It brought me back to you know, new problems that I hadn't thought about before, which is, you know, what is actually the nature of computation, right? How, how do we compute things? And do we necessarily compute things in high precision? Or could we compute things in much lower precision, especially when we think about human intelligence or, you know, which is much more related to neural network processing, right? So it's well known that neural networks can tolerate an enormous amount of noise and perturbation and still perform well. Um, so, you know, our 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 chipsets, the way we we usually think about you know computation, actually is at, at very high precision, and so maybe that's not necessary for these types of tasks, for these types of sort of AI workloads. And so within Qualcomm, um, you know, we're thinking about okay, how can we, you know, make these computations a lot more power efficient so that they can run these um, AI workloads more efficiently. So that's that that this tight interaction between the nature of computation itself. Um, and algorithms, um, that, that to me is, is extremely fascinating. And that's also driving quite a bit of the research that's happening uh, within Qualcomm. For instance, we develop uh, tools to take a very large neural network for a particular task and then compress it down to a much linear uh, architecture that uh, basically can perform exactly the same way as the bigger one but actually runs a much more efficiently on your phone or on a, on another sort of a mobile device. Um, and we also, you know, we learn algorithms to deal well with quantization. So if we, you know, if we compute with only eight bits or four bits precision, instead of uh, 32 bits uh, floating point precision. So can we still, you know, run these neural networks at a much more, you know, much higher power efficiency. Um, um, but again, a lot, uh, yeah, and, and, but equally accurate as the original uh, sort of architecture. So, so that's a couple of things that we do where AI and machine learning, um, deep learning directly interact with, you know, uh, computation and chips and hardware and stuff like that. So do you think we're going to put in, are we going to put chips in everything, kind of like the way science fiction talks about where my fork is going to measure every bite I eat and the the caloric content and my pen is going to detect botulism and report it back to my phone. If, I mean, are we really going to like bring everything alive with, um, with chips kind of embedded in everything? Do you think? Well, that's certainly a trend, right? So um, there's uh, IOT uh, sort of the internet of things. Uh, many, many smaller and smaller devices are being embedded in more and more things around us. Uh, starting with our cars and our homes, um, and, but many more smaller things you know, like our, our utilities and you know our, our furniture and you know uh, there's going to be more and more things are becoming intelligent clearly. Um, and whether there is a limit to that, you know, um, I don't know. I think we can go quite far still with that. Um, but I would also say that privacy is a real concern in this respect. So we will have to find better solutions to. Uh, guarantee our privacy because if everything around us is measuring us, um, then basically our everything we do 
anywhere at any time is being recorded somewhere. Uh, and if that falls into the wrong hands, you know, of course, there's all sorts of reasons why that could be abused. Um, and I think, therefore, it's really important that we also, alongside of these developments, we also think about solutions for this privacy problem and also for security. Because if you can, if everything is smart and you can hack into all these things and you can, you know, make all self-driving cars, you know, at one point in time drive into a tree, then, of course, that's a huge security risk. And so with all this new complexity and new intelligence in, um, in systems, uh, other developments will have to go along, you know, you know, alongside of it, which is security and, and privacy issues. Yeah, and um, I mean, and upgradability too. Like an IoT, a lot of IoT devices aren't patchable, right? Like, so if somebody finds uh, a vulnerability in my internet-enabled coffee maker, then there's no way actually to remediate that, is there? Right now. Uh, well, I would think if you're if you're you know on the if if that thing is on the internet, um, then you could patch it, right? Just I mean, it, it's not necessarily different from your phone in some sense, right? Although a lot of them are just ROM. I mean, they're just you know well, but no, I hear you. It's like the 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 very tools we build to do all kinds of good things, like look for cures for cancer, are the same tools that can be used to invade privacy and yeah. look for people who believe a certain thing. As well, yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, so that's in general with you know technology that we develop, you know, um, it, 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 a powerful tool can be used, you know, for good things and for bad things depending on uh, you know who is using the tool, right? I mean, a, 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 an axe can be used to cut trees and build houses, or it could be used in war, right? And it, it's been then there like that forever. Um, it's no different. It's just that the tools get more powerful, and so we have to be really careful with them. So. It sounds like, though, on balance, and correct me if I'm wrong, you're optimistic about how we're going to use this technology on balance. Well, I, I'm optimistic. I'm Again, um, I think we have to be, we cannot be naive about it. So in the sense that if it can be abused, it will be abused, right? And I think, you know, if you look around the world, um, certain governments are abusing this type of technology already. Um, and so you cannot really trust that it, you know, that you know, it will be all right. So you, you actually you have to build it into the system that it cannot be abused before you employ deploy it. Um, and so, so I'm a, I'm a big fan of making, you know, of I'm, I'm optimistic about all the good things that all these uh, th this technological development can bring us. At the same time, I want to be cautious and say, you know. Um, don't leave it to chance. Make sure when we roll out these things, um, it's safe, it's private, you know, and, and it cannot be abused. Well, I think that's a fantastic place to um, lead our conversation. Powerful technology with a lot of ability to do good, but a cautionary warning that it can also equally easily be abused. So, Max, how do people follow you if they want to keep up with your thoughts and you're obviously a very thoughtful guy who's thought about all of these things. Do you, do you post to social media? Do you write? Do you, do you have a blog or, or how can people keep up with you? Well, that's a really good question. Um, I don't tweet all that much. I may, I may need to tweet more. Um, I do, I'm active on Facebook. So now and then I do put things on Facebook. Um, 
you know, uh, Qualcomm sometimes write, writes blogs about our latest research. We have some really cool research that's happening right now. We have a new research entity called Qualcomm AR Research, where we, you know, where we publish our our latest research in papers and at conferences. So, uh, all, you know, you can find our latest work on the Qualcomm AR Research webpage, uh, where you can download the papers, and there will be blogs. We will have animated videos, which try to explain some of the things that we are doing. Um, so there's 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 that. Um, for my university job, I have a website. Um, it's not super active, but uh, there's a website. Well, everything you just mentioned uh, in the transcript will be turned into hyperlinks. So if somebody's listening to it, they can just go to voicesinai.com and go to the end of the transcript, and there'll be links to the animations and to the websites you reference. Max, I want to thank you so much for your time. It's been a fascinating near hour. Well, thank you very much. It was uh, great to talk to you. As AI continues to make devices, machines, vehicles, and things more intelligent, Qualcomm is pushing AI processing to the edge, specifically onto the device. With more than a decade of advanced AI research, they're making it possible for AI and machine learning to move from the data center and the cloud to the device for enhanced privacy and security, increased reliability, more immediate response, and faster speeds. From AI to 5G, it all starts with Qualcomm.